This is Alexander Sadig and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. I was thinking we, we need a Bechdel test for robots. Like, can, <laughs> can two robots have a conversation in which they don't talk about a human being? Or the three laws. <laughs> or, the, or the three laws. That's an even better Bechdel test. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 29 of season three of the Star's End podcast. Today, we're going to continue our reading of Robots and Empire with another four sections of the story as we fight our way through it. Oh, not fight our way through it, but as we as we read our way through it, the, the story. Uh, again, this story, not not the kind of murder mystery that the first two, uh, the first the first three robot stories were. Uh, there is still something of a mystery. I think Asimov couldn't keep uh, he couldn't keep away from having something of a mystery, and so we're gonna we're gonna encounter that as we go through the summary of the story. Uh, once again, we have no new TV show news, though we're all anticipating the summer, both because it's the summer and because season two or second crisis of Foundation is going to come out. So we're we're excited about that. I I have said before that I canceled my Apple Plus subscription as there was nothing I wanted to watch, I have to admit that I have rejoined Apple plus uh, because I saw this show called slow horses with Gary Oldman, who is a big favorite of mine. So I decided to go back and get the subscription so I could watch that. And so uh, I'm, I'm back to Apple plus there. As, as Dan has said, they, they are entitled to our money and they're not getting some from me. Well, for what it's worth for all mankind is, is excellent. You know, I tried to watch it and I didn't continue. If you get to the end of season two, it is very, very Star Trek like. <laughs> get to the end of season two. That's, that's quite an ask. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think there's there's Star Trek like things along, but they but they really hitch over the head with it at the end of season two. Okay. Well, maybe I'll give it another shot. As uh, we'll see how much time I have on my hands. Anyway. So we, we continue on in the story. Um, just to, to, to mention before, uh, we, we met Gladia a couple of hundred years uh, in advance of the previous book. And she met a man named Mandamus, who told her that he was afraid that he was descended from her and Elijah, and also that a settler wanted to meet her. And so as we start this section called The Crisis, Daniil and Giscard are having a conversation. One of the things that they do is they marvel at Elijah's ability to predict so many years ago that settlers would become more powerful than spacers. And it's something that Mandamus seems to have 
seems to have at least tacitly agreed to because Aurora seems to be very worried about what the settlers are going to do and how powerful they are. And so when a settler comes and wants to talk to Gladia, they are inclined to let that happen. So Daniel and Giscard are having their conversation. Uh, Giscard once again refers to the putative laws of humanics that he believes are out there. It's another oblique reference to psychohistory. And then Giscard has a memory of his trip to Earth that he took with Fastolf, where Fastolf met with Elijah. And really the purpose of that trip, although Fastolf didn't realize it, was that Giscard wanted to meet the powers that be on Earth and subtly encourage them to go ahead and support the settler movement. Uh, Giscard, although he constantly says that his manipulations of people are subtle and light, he actually seems to do, be doing quite a bit of it. Uh, he, he does a lot on Earth. Everyone that they meet uh, <laughs> goes into the meeting as a, as a settler skeptic, comes out of the meeting as an enthusiastic promoter of settling. Uh, unfortunately for Elijah, Daniil did not come down to the planet on the trip. He's, he did come to Earth, but he's up in the spaceship. And it's an interesting scene where Elijah asks if Daniil is there and his face kind of twitches. He's, he's so excited at the possibility that he might see Daniil, but unfortunately he is disappointed to find out that he's not going to see Daniil. We find out that Ben is a settler. Uh, Fastoff and Elijah talk about Gladia. Uh, as I said before, Fastoff is there to convince Earth's government to support settlement. And here is where Elijah predicts that whichever group actively engages in settlement is going to emerge as the stronger group. So that's the prediction that Giscard and Daniil were marveling over. Uh, finally, Giscard and Elijah have a bit of a powwow. Elijah reminds Giscard about his and Daniil's promise to protect Gladia, and Giscard confesses to Elijah how he is manipulating people to, uh, to support settlement, and that he will try to do it on Aurora, but that he's been having some trouble with it. Uh, Elijah predicts a crisis because he's afraid that Earth will expand and the spacers won't, and Elijah asks Giscard to protect Earth in the crisis. And we will certainly come back to that later on in this story. Uh, Giscard has more memories. He remembers Fastoff going to Kelvin Amadiro back on Aurora, who is now worse than ever. I mean, he is now just openly considers Earth people to not even be human, to be vermin. I mean, he's, he uses almost like Nazi Holocaust terminology to talk about humans. And he goes so far as to saying that um, he's willing to let all humans die to prevent Earth from expanding into the rest of the galaxy. So Amadiro has gone like full on Nazi psychotic at this point, in my opinion, uh, because he's just like the Earth, the Earth people are so terrible. I don't care if we all die. Daniil and Giscard have another discussion. They discuss the expansion and Giscard confesses that he's getting a bit conflicted about the first law and the harm that he's doing by helping because he acknowledges how much he's doing. He also apparently failed with Amadiro. Amadiro does not want Aurora to expand, does want, not want the spacers to expand. They've even given up on the Humaniform Robot Project, according to Amadiro, because they're just not interested in expansion. So Giscard is getting conflicted. He sees that the things that he's doing, the manipulations that he's doing, are causing harm in the short run, even though he has to do them for the long run. So again, we're getting closer and closer to a full formulation of the zeroth law, where Giscard is clearly already following it, 
he's already doing what he needs to do to guarantee the future of humanity, even though it means doing some harm in the short term. But it's it's causing him some problems. Daniil wants to talk about Mandamus. He's suspicious that Mandamus is up to something. And although Giscard feels like he shepherded everybody through the crisis because he got Earth to go out on settlement and the spacers aren't going to settle, but okay, they haven't attacked Earth. Now they're weaker than Earth and they're weaker than the settlers. So to Giscard's thinking, the crisis has passed. Daniil is worried that there's still a crisis and he thinks that the Mandamus meeting shows that that Mandamus, Daniil suspects, through a bunch of logic, he suspects that Mandamus has a method for destroying Earth, and that his real purpose in coming to see Gladia was to satisfy himself that he is not a close descendant of Earth people, that somehow it would have bothered him to destroy Earth if he knew that he was, say, five generations descended from Daniil, uh, from Elijah, but that if he's just really just an Auroran, then it doesn't bother him at all. Uh, I, I kind of I mean, I can see that way of thinking. It doesn't seem all that logical. But I guess if you're in the business of thinking of Earth people as a completely different species than, you know, as, as, as we know Amadiro does, maybe Mandamus does too. So then we move on to the next section, another descendant. So we go back to Gladia. The settler is coming to visit. She is ruminating about it. She's interested in the fact that his name is Bailey. She does wear her nose plugs and gloves to go see him which is interesting. I guess Elijah was an exception to her rule about Earth people, that he was special, because obviously she didn't wear nose plugs and gloves when dealing with Elijah. But with this guy, she absolutely is going to. He has a huge face-covering beard. On a side note, we find out that she made Santeric Scrimionis shave off the mustache she was so proud of and wanted to spread to all of Aurora. Right after they got married, she was like, that thing's going, is, is getting off your, that weird sort of eyebrow you have on the top of your lip, it's gone. And Santerix did it, but she suspected that he missed it because he used to like rub his lip sometimes. And that that little detail I just felt I I just it was tragic. Like I I felt for the guy. I've never worn a mustache, but you know, and we don't get Santerix's voice, but it, it kind of felt like, you know, a little bit Samson and Delilah-ish. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the way my reading of it is a little bit more extreme than 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 your take on it, Joe. Because I I got the I got the impression that she made him permanently inhibit the hair on his lip. Oh, that's very possible. Yeah, I think that's it. He he was basically depilated, right? So so very emasculating. And that does lead me to something else, which is that although this book was written in the 1980s, Asimov continues to have this sort of 1950s view of masculinity and and marriage like you know he marries her and she immediately makes him shave off a mustache when we meet this settler which we're about to meet he's got the huge beard later on we're going to see that he's got a cube of photographs in his office on his ship each one with a different woman and that you know his his view of masculinity is you know is tied up in his ability to get women oh i'm going to hold that off to later because we're going to see some more scenes like that and it's really right out of the uh, uh, 1950s science fiction, I think. Anyway, they talk about his accent. He says, good afternoon, milady. Although uh, Asimov thankfully drops the uh, transliteration of the accent. They agree that they can understand each other. He has this huge beard, although he shaves around the mouth, which I'm, try- I'm, I'm trying to picture that. And it, it it's, in my mind, it's very strange <laughs> that you have a full beard that covers your whole face, but like you're 
Your mouth is shaved. I don't know. So they can understand. Well, Lincoln didn't have a mustache, right? He had a beard and no mustache. That's part of the way there. I I suppose. I suppose. So were we saying he's got like an Abraham Lincoln beard? Maybe. That's fine. Gladia strangely reaches out and, you know, without asking, touches the beard. I I thought, you you don't, you don't do that. You don't touch people's beards. I've had a beard. You don't reach out and touch the goddamn beard. Although, you know, I, I mean, in real life, yes, that's a, that's a definite faux pas, maybe like a violation. But, you know, as I read that, I just thought back to the original scene where like she touches Bailey's cheek for the first time and mm. i thought that was just such a sweet callback in some ways so i thought more about the time that harry seldon was in uh in that particular part of trantor where the woman like where they were all bald and she wants to run her hands through his hair you know because she gets a supposed sexual charge out of it so i had a, I had a less positive view of, <laughs> of the beard scene <laughs> anyway he's from bailey world it turns out and his name is dg bailey which turns out to be the initials of his name, Daniil Giscard Bailey. Oh my God, <laughs> that's a bit much, I thought. Apparently these are very common names on Bailey World, although Elijah and Jesse are not because Elijah asked his descendants and the people of Bailey World not to use those names. Elijah and Gladiah are not. Jezebel. Uh, right, that's right. None, none of the three are, are used. Now, Jezebel is the common female name. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse is used. Oh, Jess, I'm sorry, Jesse is used. Although Jesse never went there. Right. She never left Earth. So DG explains that he came to see her because she's Solarian, which makes her angry because she doesn't think of herself as Solarian anymore. She's been on Aurora for 200 years. But he needs to know about the death of Solaria, something that has been referred to before. Uh, there are 200 million robots there, he says, and traders want to kind of go there and harvest them and sell them to other spacer worlds. And now he tells her that he actually is a descendant of Elijah in order to get her to, to go with him. And so she does agree to go, and she's going to bring Giscard and Daniil. And one can only wonder how much Giscard had to do with that, that Giscard wanted to go and that he pushed Gladia to go. And later on, we're going to find out that he did at least a little bit of pushing, although apparently she actually did want to go because she does feel some nostalgia for Solaria. And DG has played on her obligation to Elijah, who saved her twice. So she agrees to go. Next, we see her in space. It's been a while since she's been in space. She notices that DG carries a weapon. Obviously, the settlers do not have robots, and they don't have robots to protect them. And what weapon does he have? He has a neuronic whip, which is a throwback all the way back to Foundation and lots of other Asimov stories. He loves the neuronic whip which is apparently quite a painful thing if you ever if you ever experience it. Uh, I guess it directly stimulates the nerves and causes you an enormous amount of pain. You know, the first time, I don't remember the first time I realized that this neuronic whip was actually just a pain gun, as we see described here. But at, at some point, I originally thought it was like one of those TNG Ferengi whips, mm. you know, uh, yeah. they had they, back they... in season one. Right, they dropped those after yeah, that, right? I yeah. think we ever I don't think we ever saw them again. Yeah. I I got a kick out of those though. I kind of wish the the neuronic whip was that too. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fun. So, Daniil and Giscard have another conversation uh, in which Giscard admits that he manipulated Lydia into going although he didn't need to do much because he needs to know. He thinks that the 
death of Solaria has something to do with the crisis and he needs to know what's going on. They discuss Gladia's love-hate relationship with Solaria, although she absolutely feels like they kicked her off the planet and she hasn't been there for 200 years. She does have some nostalgia for it. Giscard is also worried that he's made a mistake, that maybe having Gladia and Daniil and Giscard off planet will help whatever plotters are on Aurora. And he is worried that the Aurorans have a new weapon. So this plot against Earth is beginning to take shape, but they don't know enough and they're trying to gather information. They logic out that the Auroran target is not one of the settler worlds or one of the spacer worlds, that it's Earth, that that's the only place where they would really have any impact. But they still don't have enough information to act on it. They don't know who the plotters are. They don't know what the plot is. They don't know what the weapon is, but it's becoming clearer and clearer to them that there is a plot and that the target is Earth. Now, Gladia and DG have a long discussion about Solaria. He needs info. She doesn't have much, but she agrees to direct the ship to her old establishment because maybe there'll be some robots there that will recognize her even after 200 years and uh, she can give them orders. Conversation between DG and his crew. They're getting a little bit nervous. I thought that was very Hober Mallowy, his relationship with his crew, that he's the captain and he's, he's no nonsense kind of guy. And, you know, they follow him, but but they're they're nervous and they need to be kept in line. And then we hit the, the last section for today, which is the crew. They land. Gladia, though she's not been told to do it, leaves the ship. And memories of Solaria come back. It smells right, but the house and the robots that she sees off in the distance are not familiar. And there's some crewmen out there, and they're working on some stuff. And they approach, and they're sweaty and smelly, and it gets rapey real fast. Daniil, however, is way too tough for the crew members. And then DG arrives and he is not pleased. And we see him enforcing discipline on the crew, especially the ringleader, Nis. Docks them some pay. He tells Nis that, you know, I had great things meant for you and now I don't know. Uh, but but Daniil basically has stopped the, the apparent harassment of Gladia. I don't know if they were going to rape her or if they he, he just wanted her to shake his hand, but they were being very threatening. And now he has a convo with, with Jamin Oser, who I guess is sort of his second in command. That's where we see the photo cube, which I guess proves DG's virility, I guess. Uh, they have a conversation about the first law, and they ask if it really protects settlers. Maybe not, because we know that two ships have arrived on Solaria previously and been destroyed with their crews, and no one ever came back. That's part of the reason why DG wanted Gladia to come with him because he he thought maybe having a Solarian would help in whatever negotiations they're going to need to do or ordering whatever robots around there are. I guess there's a suspicion that maybe the robots can attack settlers and can kill them. Certainly two ships full of settlers have been destroyed on Solaria. And he thinks maybe she can get control of the situation on her own estate. And then Daniil and Giscard have one more conversation. Uh, Giscard was nearby when Gladia was attacked, but he couldn't stop the attack, um, not, not without doing too much damage, but he did stop the other crewmen from joining in, so he made the situation better. But it does point up, though, that he has trouble acting subtly. He says it takes time, maybe too much time. It's those pesky laws, if only they could somehow be modified. And that is the end of today's section. I guess I will ask you guys for comments. No comment. No comment. All right. <laughs> We're done. Fantastic. Um, no, let me let me start with a with a big issue, which was one of the things that struck me here. So I, you know, we've been 
getting lots of hints way before this all through the previous novel about continuity with the foundation and so on here i was really interested that they keep uh i guess in their convos daniel and discard keep talking about the current moment as a crisis not of course calling it a selden crisis but it's a selden crisis without the selden and it's described as this pivotal moment with these historical forces when at, it is at this point where clearly earth through its own new settler settler movement and the new settler worlds has clearly grown more powerful than the spacers but yet not so completely overwhelm them that the spacers will be unable to strike back in some kind of devastating way and spacers are now feeling threatened and so this is the, this is the crisis of, is how is this resolved and we're going to get the resolution over the rest of the book but i i was just i was just kind of tickled that it is like the way the historical forces are described is and even the language of crisis is so very foundation. Yeah, actually, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of my notes is that this really reads like a cross between a foundation novel and a robot novel. Yeah. Because you've got you've got Daniil, you've got Gladaya. There's all sorts of discussions about the three laws, but you also have the crisis going on. You've got effectively Elijah predicting the future, and you've got Giscard trying to create psychohistory. It's like a melding. It is, it is certainly not not part of either series. It, it, it seems to me a, a very much of a hybrid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and again, also the way he's moved away from sort of the murder mystery format and moved into a more of an adventure format. Yeah. Although, Dan... And geopolitics, for that matter. Geopolitics. But I have to ask, though, and we're not going to resolve it here, is the resolution of this crisis going to be one that historical forces are going to force to happen? Or is it going to be the action of an individual? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I, I'd, I'd go with the latter. Well, you know, spoilers, <laughs> you know, we're not going to say. I'm just but, guessing here, but, you know. Just guessing, just throwing that <laughs> out there. And so that's... Although I will say the, the one thing that's always fascinated me about this book, and we get a lot of it in these sections, is in the conversations between Daniil and Giscard, which I love, mm -hmm. but not just the conversations between them, which do in some ways point up the difference between the way humans think and the way robots think, which I think is wonderful. I'm glad that Asimov didn't miss the opportunity to kind of say, yeah. if only I could think like a human, but I can't because of these three laws. But also, and I'm trying to think where else we get any of this we kind of get the inner life of robots like what do they think about mm -hmm. the only other example i can think of is remember on star trek when data has a girlfriend yeah yeah and she asks him what are you thinking about and he goes down this list of like technical things and like the warp drive and then you know he's solving some mathematical problem and thinking about like what to mix for spots food, whatever it is he's got like six different trains of thought that are going on in his mind and although it's played for laughs because none of them are particularly what she was really asking about very rarely do we ever get that kind of this is what a robot thinks about when it's got spare time but here we see them really mulling over problems thinking about humans, thinking about themselves. I was thinking we, we need a Bechdel test for robots. Like, can, <laughs> can two robots have a conversation in which they don't talk about a human being? Or the three laws. <laughs> or, the, or the three laws. That's an even better Bechdel test. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
But really, can you think of any other example of, of like what a robot thinks about when it's not doing some task for humans? I, I can't think of any. The um, Adam Link story, that iRobot thing, the, the Ando binder, I think it was the Ando binder, it was one of, what was some, some iteration of, of, of um, the binders wrote is an internal dialogue from, oh. from the, the Adam Link robot. So I've never read it, so I should probably read it. One thing I like about their conversation is that they not only do they does Asimov have them like note their own distance from human thinking, but their their version of trying to guess what humans are thinking is is kind of cutely wrong. <laughs> like it's it's just a little off, right? And and it's uh it's it's done so well. I got a chuckle out of it. Like there's one point in which they're trying to guess, like, well, is Mandamus up to no good? And like like maybe he was trying to ascertain if he had Earthman blood to because then if like that was true six generations ago, then he wouldn't go through with destroying Earth because he felt a kinship yep. to him. I was like, Oh, that's so because, cute that you'd think that, you little robot. Yeah. Like that's <laughs> that's but but yeah, he wouldn't destroy Earth because he's only six generations removed because he's a person of conscience. Right, right. right. which yeah. yeah. Which they don't even understand what the word means. <laughs> I did like that. I, I again, as I said, I'm very glad that Asimov took the opportunity to try at least to show what would be different about a robot thinking than from, from a human thinking. And and it is cute, but I, I think it's well done. I, I actually particularly like the fact that Giscard at least talks about how he would like to think about certain things and can't even think about it because of the three laws that as his mind begins to approach, he gets worried that he might freeze up because of a, a first law conflict and that he can't even think certain thoughts because of the three laws. So I thought that was very good. And I mean, I, I would read just a whole book of Giscard and Daniel chatting about stuff, you know, I, I love their conversations. And now you've got me pondering how my life would be very different and if I wasn't able to go, you know, just think to myself, God damn, I'd like to kill that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, Luckily, we get to think those thoughts all we want. Thank goodness for that. I do, though, I think need to point out that at least so far, and it's not necessarily going to stay this way throughout the book, Asimov is falling into his old habits of having people sitting in rooms having conversations. We have Gladia with Mandamus. We have Daniil and Diascard, as fascinating as I find those conversations. Uh, they're just either walking around or they're in a room, but they're having a conversation. You know, Gladia and DG, DG and the crew members. Now, there is the almost assault on Gladia, which is more of action. And as we get further into Solaria, there's going to be there's going to be a little more action. But Boy, Asimov really just, he just couldn't get away from that. He just loved to have people sitting around talking to each other. But at least in this one, there hasn't been a bathroom scene yet. So. Yeah, but we do have meals and long dissertations on facial hair. We do. Yes, it's true. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I looked it up. Fun fact, you know, Asimov wrote close to 500 books. But if you take out the bathrooms and the facial hair and the meals, it's like 300. <laughs> I think it says like three. You know? <laughs> like, it's not that bad. <laughs> is, somewhere in his, in his bibliography, is there like an Asimov's guide to bathrooms? You know, there should be, there, <laughs> there should, should be. be. Yeah. yeah. 
No, I think he just salted the bathroom throughout all of the work so that, you know, it's, it's everywhere. At least it was. <laughs> There's probably, there, there might be some direct bathroom material in Yasmov's Guide to Limericks. <laughs> I liked I liked in uh, in our interview with Asimov two episodes ago. Uh, after the disquisition about the bathroom, Dan just went, "Okay." <laughs> like, well, yep. Um, after all of that, yeah, that was pretty good. I guess what we've got so far is a lot of setup, right? That it. it it's hard to believe that after all this talk about a plot by the Aurorans, that there isn't actually going to be a plot. I think there probably is going to be a plot. And, uh, and that Giscard at, at the very least seems to me at this point to be kind of the main character here. He is, he is basically manipulating everybody and he is now traveling around space, trying to find out what details he can about this crisis and what he's going to do about it. But would you agree with that? That, that? that Giscard is the main character of this story. Uh, he he comes closest to being a protagonist, but it, it's a it's a weird protagonist. Like there's the protagonist function is kind of split evenly, almost almost evenly between Giscard, Daniel, uh, Gladia, and and DG. And we'll see a lot of those four going forward. I mean, of those four, like, I mean, Giscard is clearly in charge, but he also keeps telling us how little he can do. And it certainly seems like part of the story is being driven forward by other people. Yeah. And he also has to depend a lot on Daniil to fix his thinking for him. Yeah. Although, uh, as I said a minute ago, although he's constantly talking about how little he can do, he is out there doing a lot, uh, maybe in little pieces at a time, yeah. but he is not hesitating to manipulate minds, whether it's humans, robots, whatever. He's, uh, he's out there. At one point he says to Daniil that he wishes that he couldn't see beneath the surface uh, thoughts of people because it makes it harder for him to follow the first law. It, it's more evident to him how much harm he's doing when he can read the thoughts of people. And so uh, that makes it harder for him. It makes it distressing and painful for him. It's not stopping him from doing it, but uh, it's a double-edged sword. He can both you know, see what people are thinking and manipulate it on the one hand, but on the other hand, he also sees how much harm he's doing by by doing all of this. And I think that is kind of a major theme here that that is starting to build up on discard and it's starting to worry him. Some of it is interesting, nuance, interestingly nuanced. When, like when he was talking about his effect on fast off and how, you know, he was thwarting fast off and causing him pain by keeping the spacers from, um, you know, you know, you know, keeping the spacers from wanting to colonize, but that, that seemed to be better in the long run better in the long run for fast off because it would at least be giving him success you know, with earth. Yeah. And also um, it risked having a major war. If the Aurorans had realized what was happening and how the balance of power was shifting away from them, they might've actually attacked earth. So that would have been a, a bad result. And also it, it kind of goes against what Elijah wanted. Elijah really wanted both earth and the spacers to settle 
for a lot of reasons, among which was maintaining the balance of power between the two groups. Uh, Elijah also says, and not for the first time, that he would have been willing to just have the spacers expand and for Earth not to expand if that's what it took, because he was so convinced that humanity needed the expansion from whatever quarter it came. And so Giscard, in deciding to suppress the Aurorans' desire to expand, he was, first of all, walking a very fine line, but also was, you know, he was kind of on his own program and not doing what, what he knew Elijah wanted. Yeah, but, uh, but at least they used that to pretty good effect to contra contrast Bailey with Amadiro. Right, it does. And also, I mean, it's going to precipitate the, the, the major crisis of this, of this story, that the Aurorans are realizing that they're being outstripped by Earth and the Settlers. And if Giscard and Daniil are right about the plot, that's going to be a major threat to Earth. So Giscard may have inadvertently made a, you know, he thinks he made a mistake just leaving Aurora, but he may have made an even bigger mistake, which he may have, he may be precipitating a major crisis between Aurora and Earth, which again leads to this whole, this whole reason to question the zeroth law, which is that it's really, really hard to predict the long-term consequences of your actions. It's really hard to predict the short-term consequences of your actions, let alone the long-term consequences for, the, for all of humanity. And that's the problem that Giscard is facing. And, uh, and that's the problem that the Zeroth Law brings. You know, you know, in addition to being able to do anything you want, <laughs> to override any of the three laws, because you convince yourself that it's for the good of humanity. Hmm. I'd love to see two robots with with different views of what's good for humanity coming into conflict as they try to manipulate humanity to do what each different robot thinks is best for them, best for humanity. That could be some fun fan, fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> for those with time to write fan fiction. One one quick question. The the notion of uh larges that humanity has to keep expanding or or die or stagnate, right? Um do you think that there's any continuity between that concept and the vision of the galactic empire at its height that we were given in foundation novels it it did stop expanding it reached the limits of the galaxy and and didn't try to go to new galaxies i'm just curious what you guys think about uh if that applies or it's just there's too much to retcon i think it does apply it absolutely applies and i think asimov has this sensibility that Humanity must move forward, and uh, otherwise it will stagnate and die. And I, and I think it's not unique to Asimov. It's not unique to the time in which he was writing. It's, it seems like kind of a manifest destiny sort of approach where you go like, we, we, we have to keep expanding. We have to keep growing. We have to keep working. Otherwise, if we stop, we will die. And, and certainly the Galactic Empire grows to its limit and then stagnates and collapses on itself. And it's very important. The whole point of foundation is it's very important to start with some fresh energy and, and re-expand into the old galaxy. That's what foundation is all about in some ways. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not just entirely about expanding into the old galaxy, right? It's expanding in other ways, right? The first foundation is a lot of retrenching um, you know, intellectual development. And the second foundation is about mental growth we've reached the limit of the galaxies. Here's two different directions that we could be growing in. Right. And in the sequels, we're going to get a third direction. Indeed. I've often wondered about the hyperdrive. You know, I mean, Asimov wisely does not go too much into how the hyperdrive operates. I'm just wondering if there's any reason why the hyperdrive couldn't take you to other galaxies. 
if you could program it well enough. I mean, it doesn't really seem to be limited by time and space. Well, maybe by time, but but not by space. Like, you know, I mean, the way he described it early on in, in iRobot, it sort of collapses all of the universe to a single point. And so why can't you use it to go to other galaxies? I mean, I mean it, it's, it never comes up. Although there is some talk in the sequels about Asimov being, or not Asimov, about the Foundation being worried about invaders from another galaxy potentially mm-hmm. coming. And that drives part of the story. And that's, that's spoiler alert for, for many, many moons ahead. But can you think of any reason why they couldn't go to a, you, know, you couldn't use the. Well, it might be. Okay. I mean, just two things off the top of my head, but you know, suddenly, I mean, the galaxy is huge to begin with and, and being able to navigate within the galaxy is, is, is fairly impressive, but the, the scope of even trying to reach Andromeda is, is probably so much bigger that it's, um, you know, it might just be hard to, to navigate, to aim. Right. I, I could buy that. Although even today, um, we have a lot of knowledge about the structure of Andromeda, about right. individual stars within Andromeda. Right. Uh, you have to imagine that in the next 10 to 20,000 years, our astronomical abilities might get better enough that we could navigate within Andromeda pretty well. Okay. Well, okay. So, so so here's my, here's my other thought. It's like, okay, I I forget off the top of my head how far Andromeda is. Isn't it like 2 million light years away? Something like 2 million light years, right? So what we're seeing and what we're aiming for is 2 million years ago. That's true. We have no idea. You know, I mean, we'd have to be very careful about what we would drop ourselves into. I suppose you could just try to just jump jump outside, but you know the entire galaxy is moving. Right, but we can we can kind of take that into account. You're you're right that we don't know exactly what we'll find, and of course this this leads to a lot of the problems. By the way, Andromeda is two and a half million light years uh, from from here. But yeah, that's no big. That's like last Thursday. Yeah, <laughs> uh, sure. But well, that that leads to among the many problems that faster than light travel present mm-hmm. is that exact problem about you know, these separations of time and space and how little they really mean in terms of general relativity and everything. But, but um, you know, as science fiction people, we just kind of wave our hands over that. Um, but you could take into account the relative motion of the Andromeda galaxy versus our galaxy. You could do it in chunks. You could do the trip in, 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 in jumps. You know, I mean, there isn't that much in between us and Andromeda that you really have to worry about bumping into something. I don't know. It, it seems like it wouldn't be a, an insurmountable problem. No. You'd have to think there'd be some kind of scientist, you know, in the galaxy of the future going, let's see what if we can get the hyperdrive to take us to the Andromeda galaxy or somewhere else or somewhere even further away. Asimov never approached it. I personally, I think there's no reason why the hyperdrive, as described by Asimov, couldn't take you outside the galaxy to other galaxies. Of course, you do have the Star Trek problem. Which is the the energy barrier at the edge of the galaxy? <laughs> right. Which there is absolutely no evidence that there is such a thing, but maybe that would you know maybe that would cause problems to your your hyperdrive. I don't know. You've got to get as many Star Trek references in here as we possibly. Yeah, there you go. Well, you know, we've already contacted somebody outside the galaxy on Discovery, so. Yeah, but just right outside the galaxy. Yeah, right outside the galaxy, but it's still outside the galaxy. <laughs> it's true, but they did have to go through the energy barrier, and it was pretty bad. It was not a, it was not an easy trip through the non-existent energy barrier 
around the galaxy. All questions that we we have difficulty answering. Yeah. So um, uh, some general stuff. And if we're in, in, if I can jump in, sure, here. please do, please. A, a thing that the thing that um, was really striking me as I was reading this, and it, it probably should have struck me before, but the the spacers, like their assumption about Earth peoples, like they must not value life very much because they're short lived. Um, I mean, is the, the most glaring example, but I mean, some of them just sort of seem so naive or so simplistic. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a um, practically like a propaganda arm within the spacer worlds that is just um, trying to diminish the capacity of Earth people and create that rift. Well, I think there's certainly a, like a common received view of mm-hmm. Earth. Like you're right, that, that thing, when I read that, and, I, and I've done that repeatedly, and I think Asimov did this on purpose, you know, I look at that and I think it's exactly backwards. That short-lived people value life even more yep. because they're not going to be around for so long, whereas long-lived people have a lot more time. Although in the end, you know, 100 years, 300 years, I mean, it's not that different. It's an interesting question, but I think I think you're right. And I think it he's using it to show how the spacers have this kind of uh, strange socialization about Earth. I mean, they, they think Earth people smell, they... They, you know, they wear the nose plugs and the gloves, and they also think that human people, Earth people don't value life. I mean, it's all part of the way in which they other them and make them into something that's not human. And ultimately, that does make it a lot easier to try to kill them all. Yeah, absolutely. I I suppose spacers don't do any, like, extreme sports, huh? Like, there's no, no one, no one goes, like, climbing Everest. No one goes bungee jumping, they just kind of sit at home and watch hollow novels or something. Yeah, stuff yeah, like that. Because they're more abundant. They're not expanding. And so something else has to happen, right? I mean, and their robots won't let them do the risky stuff. Their robots won't let them do the risky stuff. <laughs> yeah, the um, a thing that I've been thinking about in this novel a lot, it's, it's making me think back to the classist stuff from um, The Time Machine. Hmm. Ultimately, right. it turns out that the Morlocks are the are, are the descendants of the working class, and the Eloi, who are basically just you know turned into cattle, um, are the, the the descendants of the upper crust. And I mean, and he, he's you know really hitting the. And of course, it's two hundred years since the last novel, but he's really hitting home. Uh, I think the um, the non viability of the spacer culture at this point. Yeah, Wells was not particularly subtle about about that (laughs) that's true but um, which it kind of makes me think of jonathan swift you know who was who who was not not a subtle man no um you know like at the end of gulliver's travels you know gulliver has gone has gone to this land of the whinims which are horses yep yeah and uh they're so much better so much better than human beings and at the end of the book gulliver gulliver is back in in human civilization but he's gotten himself a couple of horses. And even though they're sort of lower class, he, he goes out and he talks to them in the stable and cause he's learned the Wyndham's language. Mm. And he says something to the effect of, you know, even though they're sort of lower class, I'd rather spend time talking to my two low class horses than any human being you care to name. So, I had forgotten that bit. Yeah. Of course, the least subtle thing that Swift ever wrote was um, what was it called about? You know how to solve the uh, the hunger crisis modest in Ireland. Proposal. A modest yeah. proposal, yes. right? <laughs> to be to eat the babies. Um, so so yeah, not subtle. And uh, and Wells 
not especially subtle either. And uh, and Asimov got a little more subtle than that, but still not not terribly subtle. But I, I agree with that comparison of the uh, of the you know the, the war of the not the war of the worlds the uh, the the time machine uh, and and what's happening here. And uh, I wonder, you know, because Asimov he has the spacers think certain things like the things they think about mm-hmm. earth people and settlers, but that's not necessarily the authorial viewpoint. You know, he's assigning a viewpoint to people to show how they've decayed. Right. I do get the feeling though, that Asimov does believe in this idea of expand or die mm-hmm. because that seems to be present in a lot of what he wrote. Oh yeah. 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 And I mean, I guess that's, you know, mid 20th century kind of uh, space race. Um, I mean, you know, beyond, beyond like the, the cold war stuff about it. I mean, there, there is that lingo, right. I mean, the final frontier, right. I mean, we're, 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 you know, there's no more frontier in the U S for that manifest destiny. So we, we go up and out uh, and that's, that's where that's, you know where we go from here so i'm i'm really not surprised and i think you guys are both right that that it is there in asthma very much um and it, it's it is also probably a hallmark of 20th century sci-fi yeah particularly the particularly the heavy space travel stuff yeah yeah i mean and actually you gotta feel i mean because we're all probably disappointed in the same way but you really have to I think feel for people like Clark and Asimov who saw this massive expansion of, you know, they're, they're dreaming of space travel and, Oh my God, we got to the year that, you know, we got to the, the moon like 10 years earlier than even the most optimistic of us predicted. And, 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 you know, like when I was a kid, I'm thinking, man, you know, what are we going to do by the year 2000? And it turns out, well, we're really not going to do any more of this. (laughs) Maybe if we kept going, we wouldn't have had all this nonsense from the politicians <laughs> oh my well God. i don't know i mean you know it seems like that the conversation has restarted yeah but i have to say that i personally don't like the way in which the conversation has restarted yeah well i mean that the, yeah because it's it's less neil armstrong and more um Dutch East India Company. <laughs> okay, yeah, Dutch East. No, I was trying to call to. I was trying to call the, uh, trying to call up the name of the guy from the man who sold the moon. Right, right. I can't remember his name either. But you know, like this idea of like you know Elon Musk's idea of basically indentured servitude, getting settlers to Mars. Like, just, I'm not, I'm not too keen on it. And like, I just, I just feel like yeah, there are people you want to follow to Mars, and the people who are currently talking about getting there don't seem to be the ones that I want to follow. Um, the, the conversation just seems very skewed and stunted and and i feel like i want to just kind of call time out and start over again Mm -hmm. i i don't see any reason not to talk about humans traveling to other planets i have a lot of sympathy though for the people who say that basically at the phase we're in right now and with the money we have to spend there's nothing wrong with having robots doing our exploration for us Mm -hmm. that it's so much more expensive to send a human there just because they have to protect the soft fleshy parts you know, and then robots like look what's going on on Mars right now. We have robots going out there, vastly exceeding expectations, and that we can, you know, we can send robots all over the place for a fraction of the cost that it would send the cost to send a man. 
Um, I am not ultimately opposed to human space travel, but yeah. I think that right now we ought to be, we ought to be spending hundreds of probes out and, and landing them on Mars and landing them on the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, et cetera, et cetera, investigating the asteroid belt. I just think we could do an enormous amount of that without necessarily sending ourselves out there. But, you know, again, I'm open to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would agree with you, except that what the, I mean, and, and all the stuff that we're learning, and, and I mean, the fact that we now know of hundreds of exoplanets, and a lot of them are inhabitable zones, is just amazing to me, you know, compared to what we knew when I was, when I was interested in this stuff as a kid. But you don't get the inspiration, I think. You know, the, there's, there's going to be a lot fewer kids who are going to grow up fascinated with the idea of, of building a probe that's going to look at some asteroid than a kid who's going to grow up dreaming about, you know, potentially being the first person on Mars or something. You know, they, you know, there were, you know, when Apollo was going on, I remember having conversations with my high school physics teacher. My high school ran like uh, five or six sections of honors physics, which has got to be good for the country. You know, and, you know, when I was there in, in, uh, in, in the, uh, I guess it was early 80s um, at that point, you know, we were down to like one section and there were only like five or six of us in it. Yeah, now, I had the same experience and I do agree with that from an education standpoint. I, I wonder, though, about, you know, this, this concept of, of the dreams of young people, because I... I think that people who design the probes and design the robots, I feel like they would be, they themselves would be just as excited being the designer of the robot who goes exploring, whether it's because they're controlling the robot or they program the robot, but this relationship between the human person and the systems they design, you know, I think it's always been pretty close. Like there's this, I know I've mentioned it before, there's this Stanislav's, a Stanislav Lem story called Golem 13 about a, a robot, a, a computer really, that's reaching a higher level of consciousness. And one of the things I found just so real about the story was this relationship that the programmers had with their creation, that they just absolutely, it was not like, it was It was almost like the, the way you feel about a pet, but even more so. And they just loved this this computer. I thought, and I haven't gone through some of that. I just felt like, yeah, that is so realistic. That's the way those scientists would be. And I feel like maybe the explorer of the future, who is a lot younger than any of us, maybe he has that same he or she has that same word. They have that same feeling of of because I'm 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 unified with this robot. That it's my, it has a link to me. And if it goes out exploring, that's like me going out exploring. I know that was very long-winded, but I'm I'm trying to get somewhere with that. Mm. Well, you might you might but we right. should have more physics classes in high schools. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, well but then and math the and other science. Math, yeah, but the inspiration has to come from somewhere. We we should True. we should send these uh space robots out with a full VR uh recording capability and just beam it back to us. Put on, that put, would be put on cool. our goggles. I mean, unfortunately, the time delay is already such that we can't control <laughs> well, yeah, the remote. <laughs> you know, it's a um, so it's just pa so it becomes just passive entertainment. Yes. Well, we gamify everything: weight loss, quitting smoking, 
you name it everything's got to be gamified well, I, I feel like that may have passed that may have passed its peak the gamification of everything i don't know it might have at some point i thought the the, the <laughs> i jokingly I, I should point out jokingly since i am a, a you know i am an educator but i, I jokingly thought that the, the way to fix uh you know the way to fix the school system was dance pads and harry potter books <laughs> you know it's funny if you read harry potter books now they 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 haven't held up the way other things have i've um yeah i've never read a harry potter book joanne's oh, well. read them all i i have to admit i read them all with my kids although they lost interest somewhere along the line and of course the whole thing with jk rowling now is like a whole other story which yeah i mean not, that's that's not what i get into that is sad although it doesn't necessarily you know it's the, the author's done with the art the the, the art uh, the the author is done with her art and it belongs to everybody now that's true that's true i don't want to get into another discussion of separating artists from their art we've done enough of that and i'm, I'm tired of it but fair enough but um but back to asimov <laughs> yeah back to asimov well i don't know what to, what to say because we don't have because we don't have the murder mystery to solve it's harder to speculate about where we're going with yeah. this we don't have a victim here we you know i guess we'll talk about it more next time i it's not exactly a mystery but it's a mysterious thing the the disappearance of solaria right so right and also what what is the is the plot what, what is the plot we don't even know we know there's a plot but we don't know what it is right um i i i like i like the vanished world trope or the like the vanished society or what you know whatever happened to the solarius um and you know i i think i'm going to enjoy next week but um i'll just leave my observations about that material for next week since we you know we get a lot of gladia missing the planet some nostalgia for two centuries earlier they touched down on the planet but that's it so far so I think the the meat of the discussion should wait till next time. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And there's actually going to be like a little more actual action, yeah, going on. Very unasimov like. <laughs> um, and we can talk. We can talk next time about how good he is at writing action scenes, and and should he have just stuck to people in rooms having discussions? <laughs> Maybe. Well, I don't know. I have two words for you there: doors of the Nabilly. Doors. Doors and the knives. That's right. <laughs> doors. There's nothing like doors, two fisting knives. I got to say. Well, all right. Well, is there anything else we want to talk about this week? I think we've pretty uh, much yeah, covered I think it. That's it. All right. Well, we can, we're, we're that much closer to more episodes of the TV show. Um, we, and, we are actually, the, this is, this season now has exactly the same number as, uh, uh, of, of episodes as Star Trek season one. Wow. And we're going to go beyond that. And we're going to go beyond that. Beyond Star Trek. I guess the next, the, the next goal would be, uh, Twilight Zone. <laughs> I don't even, how many episodes did Twilight Zone have? Um, I don't know, but the, the, the seasons I think are like 30, 35 episodes. That's amazing. I mean, we get 10 episode seasons now. And I realize that the, you know, there's just like the cinematic um, presentation, the the uh, production quality is so high. Mm -hmm. But just think about that. I would like to have you at know, least we, one show that is dirt cheap to produce and is just weekly. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I would be fine with that. I could do that. I could have, we, maybe a podcast that has 29 episodes <laughs> in its third season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are dirt cheap. I'll give you that. <laughs> that we are dirt cheap. Value for money here. You yes. know, I think it was Steve Martin used to say, like, you come here and this is this will really date it because it's from the 1970s. You say, like, you, you know, you buy a ticket for four dollars. You might get a six dollar show. You might get a seven dollar show. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but think about that. A ticket to see Steve Martin for four dollars. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's insane. <laughs> I bought a ticket to go to the Denver Zoo next week. It was twenty two dollars. Yeah, just to, forget, just to go to the zoo. I forget what we paid to see Lewis Black. You know, the last last couple of things we went to were, I think, twenty thirteen. We went to see Lewis Black and Elvis Costello within a few weeks of each other. I think both of those were about fifty sixty bucks. Tickets are not cheap. And and don't talk to me about how much it cost last time we went to go see the Rolling Stones. Oh, my God. <laughs> I've never seen the Rolling Stones. Oh, man. That, what, what a great show. Yeah. I've seen them 13, 14 times. Wow. We need to talk more about Joseph and music because he's... <laughs> I was at... He's got these I, hidden depths. I was at every Rolling Stones concert in the state of Florida in the 1990s. I'm not sure I'm proud of that fact, but <laughs> no, well, I think I think it's something to be proud of. And uh, and I'm I'm a little bit. There were four shows in Florida in 1989, and I only went to two of them. Looking back, I sort of wish I went to the other two as well. <laughs> well, there you go, there you go. We have the we should we have the Joseph Music Podcast episode coming up. Sadly, it it you know it, it comes to a screeching halt sometime in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Music is that's that that's the true all the time with people. Like you, you have your music of your era, and it's really hard. Some people do it, but it's really hard to keep to stay contemporary with music. I think everybody just kind of picks a point in time and says that's that's my era. And of course, it's always the best era. The music that I like, that's the best music. So why do I need to listen to what people are making today? Because I already listen to the best music yeah well i i think it has a lot to do with uh, the i mean you know the evolution of radio the and and this is entirely from this the the, the perspective of somebody who grew up in like the the late 80s or not the ladies the, you know the, the 70s and the early 80s um it seemed like in the 1960s there was a lot of overlap between the stuff that was good and the stuff that was popular by the time i was listening to the radio the stuff that was good and the stuff that was popular was almost completely, you know, disconnected. Yeah, I actually, that is a subject that I've given some thought to, which was that AM radio, which was originally the only radio that people had, started out as not that commercial adventure, but it quickly got very commercial. And when you and I were kids, uh, FM radio maybe had already passed its peak, but like bands like Led Zeppelin, you would never hear them on AM radio. You would only hear them on FM radio. And I mean, at one point, Zeppelin had five albums in the top 10 because they got airplay. But that FM radio then eventually got just as commercialized as AM radio was. And you have to wonder whether some of these like prog bands like Yes, that put out nine minute songs, like they would never be played on on commercial radio. Yeah. 
And there was, you know, whereas you had AM radio and it's kind of non-commercial successor FM radio, there was not a non-commercial successor to FM radio, except now the way bands work is they find their audiences online and they may have a, a smaller audience, but it's a very dedicated audience and the audience knows where to find them, but they don't like, there's no medium for general play of that kind of non-commercial music. I don't know. I, I, I don't oh. want to turn this into a music podcast. But. Okay, fair enough. But I'm going to now I want to take this to a slightly bigger, a bigger platform because I think a thing, a thing that I find missing in current culture is the lack of near universal or at least you know very very pervasive cultural touchstones, right? Like when we were kids, we could talk about. Well, okay. The the, the I think the quintessential example is oh my god, it's a cookbook. Okay, and and Dan's looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> Maybe I was a couple of years. I'm wondering how we got to cook. what? What? I don't. I have, okay, I, th- I, th- I have no clue what. This okay, is. so so the, so there's there's an there's an episode of the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Called to serve man. Oh right. Oh yeah yeah I do. okay right okay yeah and and so you know it's like everybody would get that reference yeah but now music and media and books they're all so balkanized we don't really have anything like that and some of the little fiefdoms like QAnon for example are oh my god troubling in a lot of ways yeah well i think you're right i think the that the way culture is disseminated has changed and that you know there there is not as much of that kind of general information you know you don't turn on the ed sullivan show and see the beatles right you 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 find your audience you you have your group of people that you're with i mean i i don't know that it's necessarily a worse model but it's a different model it's a different model and there's something it it could even it could even be better but doesn't mean that there's not something missing i i agree as a fellow old guy Yes, I horrible. absolutely agree that culture today, kids today, my God, <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what cookbooks are. Yeah, that's right. I should go check my lawn. There might be somebody I need to yell at. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> listeners, if you're if you're under thirty, if you're still here. Get off our lawns. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, no, we need all we don't all three of those guys. <laughs> we need them on the lawn. That's right. <laughs> Live show from our lawn. You people stand on the sidewalk. Don't 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 stand on the grass. And we'll do a live show for you. All right. And I think on that note, and now that we've we've expanded off into culture in general and people getting off our lawns, we should probably uh, we should probably wrap this episode up. Yeah, we can get off our own lawn and, and, and call it an evening. And then come back with another four or so sections of robots and empire in two weeks. Awesome. All right. Good night all. All right, see ya. Good night. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter at starsendpodcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.